Hello, everyone. This is Shannon Waller here, and welcome to my next author interview with someone that I am just thrilled to be speaking with. This is Richard Abraham, and he is author of a best-selling book called Mr. Schmooze, The Art and Science of Selling Through Relationships. Now, it's interesting. This book was recommended to me by two very valuable clients of mine, people I know really well, people whose opinions I really respect and trust. It was kind of interesting because the title was was like, oh, okay, schmooze. Okay, I think I know what that is. And they're like, no, you have to read the book. You really have to get into it. And I read it and I was like, wow, I've been selling officially since 1991, if not before. And there were things that I picked up in your book, Richard, that totally inspired me, totally reinforced when I was doing things right, but really helped to take my thinking to the next level. So I really appreciate you being here today to share that wisdom with everybody. And I'll have a bunch of questions for you. But one of the things that I just wanted to ask you is how did this book come about? What was the inspiration for Mr. Schmooze? Sure. Well, you know, I was in business for a long time on both the buy side and the sell side of the transaction equation. And on the buy side, I had been a real estate developer for years, developing big buildings. And we were, as the projects became ever more sophisticated, we were buying hundreds of millions of dollars worth of goods and services from firms like architectural firms and elevator firms and so forth. And what struck me was every time we would go out and solicit bids or start to try to generate some input on some of these big purchases, out of a sea of competition, eventually in any given market, someone would rise up as sort of the unforgettable, higher-energy, ultra-helpful salesperson. And that person inevitably would be the one who would dominate that particular marketplace. So I became very fascinated with those kinds of people from the buy side, began to study them, and then also began to apply some of the principles I was learning from them to the sell side because we had a lot of real estate brokers working for us as well. That's really powerful. So you really got intrigued about what the most successful people were doing. Now, in terms of Mr. Schmooze, I also understand that you have a real-life person as well as your own capabilities in selling. There's someone that the book is modeled after. Is that right? Well, it's really a composite of a number of the best people that I came across over the years. There's a couple of them that stand out. One is a fellow down in Atlanta who's in the real estate business. Another one is a janitorial salesperson in the Chicago area that ended up with over 85% of the downtown market in what otherwise is a very, very commoditized sale environment. And so those fellows particularly were the ones that intrigued me because they were generating a tremendous amount of energy. And that also then took me on a journey that I can talk about a little bit later into my graduate work and some stuff we did with the psychology people at the University of Chicago. And then also even into the entertainment business, trying to figure out, you know, why is somebody like Oprah so powerful? And what would she be like if she were out selling insurance or whatever? And, you know, the answer is, of course, she would be outstanding. So it just it was a journey that just continued to blossom over time. Well, that sounds exciting. I mean, clearly selling for you and as we're going to talk about the art and science of relationships, obviously is a real passion for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, relationships is what it's all about. And what's really interesting to me is that the people who are selling at the very, very highest levels really do play the game differently than almost everybody else. And it's that differentiator that makes them outstanding, both in terms of being 
unforgettable and also their performance and productivity. That's great. Well, I want to know exactly what those things are. Before we jump into that, though, one of the things that also struck me is in the story, which is to everyone is told as a story. Of, I highly recommend you run and buy this book or order it immediately because it's told in such an accessible way in this great story. The examples in there, Richard, are just fabulous. And one of the things that I'm clear on is that I think everyone is selling all the time, whether we're very good at it or not. <laughs> That's a whole different <laughs> different distinction. But I think this message is really useful for people who are not just put it this way, not just for the people who know that they're selling, but in fact for everyone, because at any moment, in any role, in any position, we are selling ourselves. Isn't that right? That's exactly right. You know, you can call it selling, you can call it persuasion, you can call it relating to other people, but you have to be very careful about being condescending toward those types of communications, i.e., well, that person's just a salesperson, or that anybody can sell, because nothing could be further from the truth. Agreed. And to your point... Literally, and I talk about this in some of my keynotes and workshops, a scientist could create a cure for cancer and be sitting in the corner of a laboratory all by himself and be a curmudgeon and not like to talk to anybody, and it's a good likelihood that that cure would never get out into the open marketplace. So you have to be able to communicate, persuade, relate to, connect to people, whether you're selling as a profession or indeed just communicating as a human being. Mm, I love it. So this, to my mind, obviously, I know lots of people listening are superb salespeople and can't wait to learn how to get better. But also, even if you haven't thought of yourself as a quote-unquote salesperson, and I like what you said, there's no such thing as just a salesperson, that we all can get better at communicating and influencing and persuading and getting our point across, getting our value creation across. So that's really what, to my mind, just came out so clearly. So let's talk about some of those high performers. Let's talk about Mr. Schmooze. And what sets them apart? What makes them different? Well, I think, you know, if you go to the entertainment industry as sort of the most obvious place to actually see connecting with other people on display, it's interesting to kind of go down the line of people like in the older days, Johnny Carson, maybe it's some of the newer talk show hosts now, but in any case, at one time, Johnny Carson in his old Tonight Show basically had something like a 75% market share at night. So you could turn on your, your television set and you could watch anything you chose to watch, but everybody, most everybody was tuning in to Johnny. And so you have to ask the question, why? You know, what's going on? And the answer is pretty simple to see, but fairly profound. And that is that when you turn down a show like that, or a movie, or a book, or anything else like that that sort of turns you on, you're at sort of one emotional level when you turn it on, and then when you turn it off, you feel a little better. Mm. You know, you've had a spark, and it doesn't have to be a big movement. But what happens? Well, if that happens, you're going to go there again tomorrow night, and you're going to go there again the next night. Because that magic, that ability, or that gift to raise someone else's emotions is valued so highly by human beings, particularly in our societies, that we'll reward them with more wealth than almost anybody else. So if you take a look at an Oprah, of course, you know, success story well documented, went from nowhere to being one of the most important women in the world for one reason. A woman could be in her home or wherever, turn on Oprah, experience the show, turn it off, and she felt better. That's exactly what the great salespeople do. They're not just out there selling the intellectual side of whatever it is that they're trying to get across. They're connecting emotionally. They're lifting spirits. And so if you've got 12 salespeople you could talk to, which one will you welcome into your life? 
the one who is able to relate to you and raise your spirits, even just almost microscopically. But that's what happens. I love that. Well, first of all, that's something I feel like I can do. So <laughs> that to me, I was like, okay, I, I, that probably may explain why I was a decent salesperson. But I never in a million years would have narrowed it down to that. So many people get caught up in their ability to articulate the features. We're going to talk about the difference between features and benefits a little bit later. They would have thought it had much more to do with that intellectual part that you just referenced, as opposed to really it's the people that can lift the spirits, that can really raise people's emotional level even a little bit. Those are the people who end up winning constantly through the business. That's exactly right. And we know through research that over half of any sale is contingent upon the buyer's impression of the salesperson himself or herself. Mm -hmm. So you're really linked to your product and your service. You're an ambassador. You have to be in sync with that, which you're trying to sell to sort of have the best of all worlds when you're trying to connect with someone at both levels. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. One of the things that it talks about in the opening flap of the book is that along this point about emotional connection is that really selling is giving. Yeah. And that to me was such a profound statement because most people don't think about it. the most successful salespeople are the ones that are also the most successful givers. And that certainly is not the quote unquote general impression out there in the world. So I love that it turns that on its head. But there's an abundance way of thinking. There's a generosity that goes along with that, that to my mind, I find incredibly inspiring. Well, it's inspiring, and it's just, it's just a positive way to live your life and your business life. I mean, there's a little bit of the golden rule in there, and it's just embedded. It wasn't anything I consciously you know, tried to put in, but what goes around does come around. And so the idea of service and the idea of being hyper alert to how you can help other people is really the way that the best salespeople that I know operate the ones that are on the make or on the take that are taking, you know, they may do okay for a while. You know, they may be able to get into a hot industry and hustle and make some money, but they're not going to take it for the long haul, for the sustained repeat business that we're trying to talk about here in the book. I just talked to a realtor a few minutes ago because I'm trying to buy a house in Austin, Texas, and one thing that he mentioned to me that's come up a couple of times is he's interested in a lifetime relationship. Now, he's been taught that by whoever he works for, but I believe this guy. And what he means is he doesn't just want to have me buy this house. He wants to do all the houses and all my friends' houses for the next 25 years. And that's kind of what I'm talking about in this book, our relationships, as opposed to let's just get a sale, get out of there, and move on. And I really appreciate that because certainly at Strategic Coach and with everyone, the entrepreneurs and teams with whom we work, relationships are the name of the game. You know, if you want a transaction business – we're probably not the best program for you. If, however, you want to have a strong relationship business, we have lots of tools and ideas around that. To my mind, this is completely aligned and congruent with how we think and our value system. So that was one of the reasons why I was so excited to connect with you. So the whole thing about giving and about creating value and about not being on the make or the take, that's a great way to say it, but really to be able to help others. So let's talk specifically about how to do that, because there's a few things that you talk about in the book, which I think are very, to my mind, wise to bring out, and I, I want to make sure everyone knows them. So talk about a little bit elevating experiences and how does that happen and how do people help other people? Well, I think the helping other people and the elevation are connected and they're separate. So let me kind of take them in two different ways. Great. Elevation is really what we're talking about is the art of taking any point of contact or anything that's going to touch a client or a prospect 
and then thinking, how can I make that better? And how can I make that better? And how can I make that better? And if you're sitting with three or four people, just taking it to the moon, now you're going to cross a threshold where it becomes crazy. It's too expensive. You know, well, I'm going to take them to the Academy Awards, and then we're going to go meet one of the big stars. All right, we can't do that, but can I throw an Academy Awards party? Or, you know, can I have them meet some local celebrity? You can kind of bring it back, but it's always taking whatever everybody else would do in terms of your competition and then trying to break out into elevated territory. One of the best examples of elevation I've ever seen, I just saw about a week ago. My daughter took a flight from Austin over to San Francisco on Virgin Air. You may have flown it. I haven't. So Virgin Air is the number one rated service airline right now in the world. So Virgin Air, she showed me the video because there's 9 million followers of how Virgin Air shows you the safety video or demonstration when you sit down to buckle your seatbelts. So all the other airlines, you've been through the drill. Everybody here has been through the drill that's listening. Sit down, buckle your seatbelts, blah, blah, blah. Virgin Air puts on the coolest, hippest, catchiest video I've ever seen. Dancers, very funny rap music, the whole entertainment thing, telling you how to buckle your seatbelt, the emergency landing procedures, and so forth. It's awesome. They've taken what is a very mundane little touch point, and they've turned it into a wonderful differentiator. Now you're with us. Now you're with the coolest airline. Now you're going to get great service and have fun. I just thought it was ingenious. I've seen that video and it is killer. It is so much fun. You're like, oh my gosh, that's brilliant. And they get the point across and they kind of poke fun a little bit. Like if you don't really know how to do up your seatbelt, there's something also about the playfulness or having fun that comes through both in the book and what you've said in your example about Virgin Air. So I think that's another part of it too, is people just are light. There's a lightheartedness about it. The whole idea, again, is making that emotional connection. So you can take, in, you know, in the book we have a golf outing and we talk about, okay, you know, everybody takes everybody on golf outings, but what are five or six or seven components that could go into a golf outing that could make your golf outing the one that stands out? And without going into all the details, we break it down. We say, well, first of all, how could the invitation be cooler? Well, the invitation could be cooler by sending a scorecard with the layout or some sort of history of the course, if it's a special course or a book on the course, whatever, so you sort of get the juices going. And then you can get there and have lunch, but instead of just having lunch, you can have the pro stop by, say hello, tell everybody he's going to have a quick chipping lesson before you tee off, so you now elevated that part of it. And then at the end, of course, you know, you can have the usual picture taken, but then you could also send that out later, have some sort of fun passage related to that. And then what we've said is instead of having a moment in time, which is a golf outing or a dinner or taking someone to a play or whatever, and you turn it into an umbrella or a glow. So the person is anticipating it and having fun, the person is experiencing it and having fun, and the person is reliving it and having fun. That's what we talk about when we're talking about elevation. I love the whole thing, and, and you had told me about this before when we spoke earlier, the whole thing of leaving them with a glow. I mean, I can picture that. I can picture someone's face. And when you actually have that as your end goal, that certainly will drive that creativity and those ideas for how to do that. So one of the things in the book that impressed me, and again, this is all about raising people's spirits and elevating the emotional component too, is how Mr. Schmooze did that not just with his clients, but also with every single person with whom he came into contact, be it the hostess at the restaurant, the person who's parking the car, whatever. So talk about some of those examples, because I found those very meaningful in the whole scheme of things. 
Yeah, I think if before reading the book, if for someone's listening to this, you know, you could picture Mr. Schmooze as sort of an over-the-top personality, a big personality, but not obnoxious. And I use Mr. Schmooze as my publicist told me if I wrote a book, The Art and Science of Selling Through Relationships, I'd sell about three books. <laughs> so we looked for kind of a hook. Mr. Schmooze became the hook because actually it does fit some of the things we're talking about, and then the book went crazy. So, again, Mr. Schmooze is not obnoxious. He's not pushy. He's just one of those people like Auntie Mame, you know, that walks into the room and now the party can start. <laughs> Everybody's waiting for him because he's bigger than life. And so, yes, he is going through his life like a whale swimming through the water, touching everything around him. And he is so immersed in this whole giving idea, turning people on, upping the energy in wherever he is, that he doesn't discriminate between, oh, well, you're important, so I'm going to turn it on. He's turned on all the time. And so what happens in the book is, whether it's the car hop, he knows him personally, the waitress or the maitre d', the important person that's at the table, he is just going bang, 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 trying to understand what he can do to elevate that person's emotions at the moment or maybe over time. So you'll see in the book that perhaps the car hop said he's trying to get into, you know, a junior college, and Mr. Schmooze makes a couple calls, and then the dean calls him back. He's just on the alert, because in real life, there are so many things we can do to help people if we just listen. Mm. Okay, so let's talk about listening, because I think that's a fairly profound part of the whole process. So how important is listening? And if you're trying to emulate Mr. Schmooze or have those same kind of results in your relationships, what is he listening for? How does that work? Yeah, that's really a great question and probably the most important part of all of this. And again, I get into this quite a bit when I speak, not as a commercial here, just because I, I want to tell you how important it is to me. I take a lot of time on it. There's two kinds of listening. First of all, I'll ask people, everybody in the room, raise your hand if you think you're a reasonably good listener, and everybody does. And I'll say, oh, that's interesting, because there was a big study done among salespeople, and in a 60-minute conversation with a prospect or client, how many minutes, on average, do you think the salesperson talked versus listened? And the answer is 48. So what happens is salespeople are high energy, they can be dominating, they're excited, they want to get all their stuff talked about, the adrenaline's flowing, and they do it the exact wrong way. It should be 48 for the listening and 12 for the talking. So if you start with that, so first of all, shut up. <laughs> you know, quiet down <laughs> and start listening. But then the second thing is the really great salespeople are not only listening again for those intellectual cues about, okay, you know, what's going to be the sweet spot of this deal or what's the high leverage points. They are always on the alert for these emotional cues because you never know where a person on the other side is in their life. So one of the things that I'll do is I'll talk about this janitorial salesperson that I knew who was the superstar. Most janitorial guys will come in and they'll say, how are you? I'm fine. Great. I hear you're bidding. I'd like to bid. Good. Here's what's great about our company. Okay. That's not what this guy did. Okay. This guy would come in. What you realize is that little box of where this person lives, the other person the little box of I'm a property manager and I've got a contract, that's part of a huge box that have another thousand little boxes in them. My kid's on the Little League team. He's got a ball game tonight. 
oh, my God, uh, there's a bullying problem going on at the school. I'm going to go in to see the dean this afternoon. Trying to get my kid into Georgia Tech. My mother's starting to get older. What do we do now in terms of some sort of uh, assisted living? All that stuff is churning in the other person's life. And it may or may not be that the janitorial contract at the moment is really the emotional high point. And so our friend, the janitorial guy, did is he'd get to know you that he would always understand what the real high emotional point was in your life at any given time. And then he would generally somehow find some small way to connect with that. Could send you a little you know, on the assisted living, maybe a little note, say, I hear this place is pretty good. You might want to check it out. Whatever it was, he was constantly sending signals to you that I'm listening, I care, and I'm doing something about it. Wow. And that's a relationship. I love that. I'm just writing that down. Listening, care, and take action. Yes. That really is the formula. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's fantastic. Part of the reason why I also appreciate that is that people going to our transaction relationship conversation, it really does mean that we're seeing people as people, not as the means to an end. Mm-hmm. Not as just a cog in a wheel that we have to deal with to get to say yes so we can get on to the next thing, which is really treating people like a thing. Is not treating them like a person. So there's a humanity about this approach to my mind that I really appreciate. So that's something I think that's a little bit different. And it can be easy in sales, especially with the focus on activity and the focus on results, to kind of forget that the only way it can happen is through people, through having that relationship. As you suggested earlier, it can be fun. It doesn't have to be so deep. I had a situation where I was going to see a fellow who was selling me some things, and I was going to meet him for lunch. I was a little early. I stopped at Barnes & Noble. I was browsing, and I like boxing, so I picked up and started reading a Joe Frazier book. I got to lunch. I mentioned it to him. He said, that's really interesting. I like boxing, too, blah, blah, blah. I went to the men's room, I came back, and then I went back to the office, and the book was on my desk. So this fellow had called his secretary while I was in the men's room, said, go get that Joe Frazier book, put it on Rick's desk. I mean, how cool is that? You know, just <laughs> bim, bam, boom. Your formula, listened, cared, acted. Very nice. Then that person elevates in your thinking about who they are and what impact they can have on your life and who they are. They reach an inner circle that otherwise they might not have gotten to. Oh, big time. I mean, imagine if you're the buyer now and the time comes for an opportunity. And this fellow or woman has been doing this, you know, on a fairly regular basis for a year and no one else has been. (laughs) And then, you know, the prices are about the same. Who are you going to call? You know, and then it's funny because the other people go, well, what happened? (laughs) Well, if you don't know, (laughs) you'll never know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're, they're playing a totally different game. You remind me of a quote in the book where it talks about Mr. Schmooz is coaching someone else on being a salesperson. And he says, actually, you're selling a commodity. She said, that's really a good thing. I have to tell you, I paused and I stepped back a little bit. I was like, what? Selling a commodity? That's the hard thing to do. He said, no, it's actually easier. Yeah, because the differentiator then becomes you and you can control that. Mm-hmm. That was a very profound point to me in the book. That was an angle I was not expecting. Oh, good. Yeah, that was fantastic. So now you talk about in the book telling a story with passion. So when... For those 12 minutes that it is appropriate for the salesperson to talk, you talk about telling a story, and there's a couple of parts of that that I thought were key. Well, it's actually telling a story with passion, which is part of the clue here. And the point that I really love is that you have a line about being absolutely ferocious in converting features to benefits and how important it is to communicate with passion. So can you talk about those couple of elements with regard to when it is appropriate to communicate and how to communicate? 
yes. I'll start with the features and the benefits, and then we'll come back to the passion. We spend a lot of time working with people on the difference between features and benefits. Most salespeople either don't know the difference or they don't know the emotional difference. So if I were to say to you, I work for a strategic coach, and we have been around for 35 years helping people reach their potential. Let's take back the reaching potential. We've been around for 35 years helping people. I'll ask the audience, is that a feature or a benefit? And some people will go, oh, Peter, benefit. I go, that's a feature. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we are international feature. We have thousands of people in our community. That's a feature. And so what happens, of course, is that without knowing the difference, we've seen many salespeople construct what we call an elegant or an exquisite feature-driven presentation. I work for IBM. We're the biggest feature. Been around a long time. Feature. We've got a lot of coverage. Feature. So what you have to begin to do is to take those features, which, by the way, can be great. It's great that you have those things going for your company and for you. You have to convert them to real benefits on the other side, and we like to see those benefits even go further into the emotional realm. So what we've learned is that there are four reasons people will buy anything, and it's power, profit, prestige, and pleasure. Everything falls into those buckets. So if you're going to say something like, we've been around for 35 years, keep going, and therefore... We have a tremendous amount of experience and information and data that we've put together that can help you keep going, personally, not only connect with lots of different people that can help you enhance your productivity, but at the end of the day, people who have been working with us make 50% more revenue or income than others. Now you're into the benefit side. Somehow you're driving those features into the payoff, and that's a huge, huge difference. It's interesting because features and benefits, certainly when I did sales training, which I have to admit was a while ago now, I always thought I knew, but I would talk about the features as though there were benefits and it would frustrate myself with how challenging that was sometimes. One of the points that the book brings up and you do too, is it what difference does it make to that person? Right. You said personally, this is the difference it will make. So it's the difference that the feature will make, I think is the benefit. Is that right? Yeah, let's say you're selling insurance and, you know, you're going through term versus whole life and you're talking about the different things. At the end of the day, a payoff would be, so basically, Mr. Abraham, unfortunately, if you do pass, your family will be able to live independently without you for the rest of their lives. So you're finally bringing it home. All that other stuff, I didn't even hear, you know. I mean, I kind of heard, I kind of, but now you're coming to the payoff. What is the payoff point? And, of course, part of that is then you need to know, we're back to our relationships and so forth, what is the emotional hot button for the other person? If you're selling, let's just say, elevator service to someone, and that someone just had an emergency where the CEO of another company threatened to pull their whole company out of your building because someone got stuck in an elevator, what's your hot button? I never, ever want anyone to get stuck in one of my elevators. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so if you know that, you're not going to go in and talk about, yeah, we've got great service, and we've got people all over the city. You come in and say, we've got the best track record in the city for people not getting stuck in elevators. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, which goes back to listening. If you weren't paying attention to that, or you had your own exquisite feature presentation, and you were just waiting for them to be quiet long enough so that you could talk, you would miss that opportunity. That's exactly right, and I love it because even now, 
people come in and try to sell me stuff, I'll sit back and listen, and I can tell within 30 seconds which way it's going to break. It almost always breaks the wrong way. But they'll come in, and we had one at the Sears Tower. We were remodeling it. It was a billion-dollar deal. And the first three architects came in and said, here's what we do. Here's the pictures of everything we've done. This is why we're great. The last guy came in, and by the way, just anecdotally, the big turning point on the Sears Tower where Sears was leaving, we had to turn it into a multi-tenant situation and really clean up the lobby and make it more attractive to more people. He comes in, rolls up the plan, says, here's how we're going to make the lobby super attractive so that you can bring more people in. It's going to be a very clean space so it doesn't look like Sears anymore. Perfect. Yeah, it was slam dunk, you know, done deal. Awesome. By the way, this is kind of cute, Shannon, but it really works. We call it... Talking about your kids or talking about their kids? <laughs> That's a good thing to remember. <laughs> yeah. So if you you know you come home at night and your neighbor's there and you're going to go sit out on the deck and they take out the vacation pictures, you're like, oh, my gosh. We want to see pictures of our kids. So if you're a salesperson, don't go in and talk about your kids. We're great. Our company, 50 years. Forget it. Go in and talk about their kids. Now, the thing that strikes me about that is you really have to be confident in order to do it. I often think that features or talking about what you know is a fallback position because sometimes people walk into a situation they're not confident. You don't know what the other guy's going to say. You don't know exactly how that conversation is going to play out. So people default to what they do know, which is their own stuff, as opposed to be willing to listen and trust that they will actually have something valuable to contribute and to actually just shut your own conversation down so you can pay attention to somebody else's. Well, and that's why I'm going to give you the greatest opening line we've ever heard in any sales presentation. Yes, please. Yeah, and it goes something like this. Instead of coming in and saying, I'm from Strategic Coach, and here's who we are, and here's what I do, you walk in and you say, I'm from Strategic Coach, got a lot of things I can cover with you here today, but before I get started, what's the most important thing you want to make sure we talk about at this meeting? Ooh, I love it. I'm so glad you said that, Richard, because we actually have a question. When I first learned it here at Coach, I thought it was completely transformational, so I'll share the question with you and everyone. And this is how I would say it. It's like, you know what? I'm talking to you about Strategic Coach, but before I get into what we're about, I have a question determine whether or not this is something that's of value to you. We call it the R factor question. When R, by the way, stands for relationship. So the question is, and it can be modified, but essentially it goes like this. If you and I are meeting here three years from today, looking back over those three years, what has to have happened for you personally and professionally for you to feel really happy with your progress? And so it's all about entrepreneurs. That's who we're working with. Three years is the year after the year after next. 10 years is way too big. Who knows what technology we'll be doing by then? And then people think about their future and what's most important to them. Now, I also like your question, what's the most important thing for you to talk about with us today? But the point being, it's all about them. Yes, their kids. Yes. Let them go to their kids. Okay, let me show you my kids. Let me show you this. Let me show you my life, my world, how I live. The interesting thing, I'm sure you get the same reaction in the context of strategic coach that I see many people get in different industries is that it may take you in a direction you would never have dreamed it was going to go. Most of the time. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that is so cool, you know, because you'll come in and you'll think this gets all about price, you know, if it's another business situation, and a guy will say, I don't care about price. Yeah. I want to make sure you never embarrass me. I want to make sure I look great. You never know where it's going to go. But if you were coming in and prepared to talk about one thing, and you go off on that tangent without asking the guy, that is absolute, you know, he turn around, he's going to be falling asleep at, at the table. Fantastic. 
Yes. And, and it's interesting because in fact, you have, by asking that kind of a question, you have in fact told that person what you're about. You're about them. Yes. You're not about you. You're about their kids, not your kids. A tremendous show of respect, which it should be because they're the buyer. You're the seller. Yes. And it's also how you find out those emotional points that you're talking about. Yes. So going back to telling a story, the other part of it is passion. And again, there's a great story about how that happens in the book. So talk about telling a story with passion or without passion. And what's the difference between the two? Yeah, telling a story, first of all, the art of storytelling is a very, very important art. It's one that I would perhaps encourage strategic coach to take up with its students as a part of the curriculum, if you will, or the overall, or otherwise see if they can find places to do it. There's improv classes, whatever. But if you get somebody like a Bill Cosby or a Tom Hanks or in the old days Will Rogers telling stories, stories basically take a person's mind and they move it from sort of the hard thinking side to the imagination side. And if you can tell a good story with a good beginning, uh, sort of a suspenseful middle, okay, what's going to happen? And they want to hear the ending. They start to dream. They're moving into that place that does touch emotions more than, you know, here's exactly what's going to happen intellectually. So the passion part of it really comes in. You have to really make a commitment to that story. You have to prepare something that's going to say something like, you know, let me tell you something about somebody else who had the exact same career path as you do, worked with us as a strategic coach. We started out with this fellow, and then you start to tell the story. And the, the other side is, wait, wait, what, what, what happened? You know, what finally happened at the end? And I'll tell you, at the end, this guy is the number one producer in the state of New York, investment banking. And then, by the way, the passion part of it, you know, he's got three kids. They have a place in Paris. You really tell the full story, you know, like it's a movie. And it gets the other people, again, not only dreaming and imagining, but they put themselves in the protagonist's place. Like, that could be me. And that's sort of the magic of it. The other thing that I know that you're talking about telling stories in the book, and I realized, oh, there's something I could do a lot better. And that is the importance of having concrete examples of change. You know, yes. so measurements. So let our audience know what some of those things are, because that impressed me as well. Well, having concrete examples or case studies is really the one where I think, let's just say that you are selling houses. You're a, a realtor and you're coming in and you're trying to get a listing from someone. And so, of course, all the listing agents are coming through and they're saying, we can do it and we'll get you the highest price and we've been in business forever. It's much more powerful to come in and say, you know, this is a Tudor home. It's got certain characteristics to it. And i got to tell you, I sold a home exactly like this two miles away for X amount of money, and here's how I did it. There's certain people who like Tudor homes. I understand who that market is. I'll target that market. I know how to talk about a Tudor home. So we had a woman come in, and then they begin again to talk about what exactly happened on the other side in the parallel universe so that this person begins to see you selling their home the same way. Is that what you were getting at? Yeah, and the example in the book was how weight training can increase a basketball player's jumping from X mm. inches to X plus six inches. Yes, yes, and you know, you're right now, because I remember that. And what we were saying is, you, in the book, there's a Mr. Schmooze is sitting there with another man and with the intern that works for Mr. Schmooze, and the other man has mentioned that his son is now tracking to get a scholarship to Georgia Tech to go ahead and be a basketball player. And then somehow one of the people, maybe it's the kid, says, well, has he been to XYZ camp? And then instead of just saying that's a great camp, 
Mr. Schmooze begins to say, well, what happens at that camp? And then the kid talks about, well, they're really, really good at getting a person's vertical jump to increase. All right, now you could stop there. But what Mr. Schmooze does is he looks at the other fellow and he says, oh, my God, can you imagine if your kid's this great already, if his vertical jump went from 33 to 38, he'd be slam dunking all over the place. And he, again, like you're saying, he creates this beautiful picture as opposed to just dealing with the data or the facts. And to use facts extremely strategically because then it became really sticky. Like I remember it. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's yeah. something you kind of can't forget. And all of a sudden it gives real concrete reality to the story. So that to me was another aspect of it that was a great thing to remember because I'm, Yes, things are great. It's fabulous. But how and why? Mm -hmm. And you actually define a few of those examples, not all of them. They're much more memorable. And that was something that I thought was a great thing that you brought out. Good. Thank you. You're welcome. Now, the other thing that came out of the book, which I find kind of fascinating, was just how much time and effort, and you spoke a little bit to this earlier, of orchestrating social events and how much thinking and thought Mr. Schmooze put into pulling people together. So talk a little bit about that, because I think that he almost was, from when people arrived until when they left, every little possible detail was thought of. So it was really not just throw people together and see what happens. The details were thought through. So can you paint the picture for us of what that kind of a social event might look like? Yeah, what we're trying to get at there is Back to elevation and also just to sensitivity and understanding how important details are. Because you start with a basic premise of, all right, I'm going to have eight people to dinner at, you know, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse tonight. Now, again, a lot of people just stop there. They'll say, this is going to be great. I've got a couple clients coming. I've got some friends coming. It's going to be a wonderful event. And the steakhouse will take care of the rest of it. Well, what Mr. Schmooze is thinking is, wait a second, we're back to that glow. There's a lot more going on here. There's a lot of opportunities to get that emotional level up and also to create a memory that, once again, will differentiate this event from other events. So he goes down the line in the book and he says, you know, what can happen? Well, first of all, the guy pulls up in his car. Is there an opportunity there? And as you, you know, we said the car hop's already been tipped. It's all taken care of. He takes the car around the corner, washes it, you know, has some fun doing that kind of thing. We get into the bar, the bartender's already been prompted. The bartender probably knows some of the people by names, might even know somebody's cocktail. Little fun things where they'll just shake their heads and go, how do you know that? Another thing is that what we found together, some of us, in doing these types of events, is you can go to, let's just say you're at a convention and then you break out eight people and you're going to go over to the steakhouse or wherever, a slow dinner can just kill an evening. And so what we like to do and what he's figured out in the book is he's pre-ordered pretty much for everybody. So when the eight people sit down, big seafood platters show up for appetizers. And then maybe the guy comes around and says, look, you've got a choice here. Mr. Schmooze is buying. You can either order the lobster or the fish or the the steak, but it's not every person going down every part of the list asking questions. That's great for a romantic evening with your husband or wife or when you're out with four people and your foodies. This is more of a, you know, we want to keep things moving. And then what we also have done often is we have the fun things going at dinner. One thing we've done over the years is after the first course, we'll ask every other person to get up and move one seat to the left. And at first, everyone's awkward, like, what? but it, it's kind of fun. Now, I'm sitting next to you, Shannon. I didn't even know you before. What are you all about? And we have those kinds of things going, or little trivia contests. So the point I'm making is that 
he looks at it almost as theater. He looks at it as, I'm the director, I'm Steven Spielberg, how can I make this four hours some of the coolest time anyone's ever spent? And then he goes in because you know, God's in the details. I love that theater analogy. And you're reminding me, there's one of the people who recommended the book to me, his name is Dr. Stephen Hotze. He was doing some of this before he met you, but I think you helped elevate his game <laughs> with regard to this. <laughs> and we did exactly that at dinner, and it was fantastic because I would normally be seated. I consult with them, normally seated at a certain place across the table. But then we all rotated, and we had little questions we all had to answer and guess who had answered what. And he pre-orders, certainly the appetizers, if not the main courses as well. And, or, and desserts just kind of one of everything, and we all share, which is kind of fun. And the level of interaction is so much higher. It's almost like a party sitting down because of how it's all orchestrated. So it's fantastic. And Dr. Hotsey is famous for taking pictures and sending them to you framed afterwards. Ah, he did read the book. He, oh, my, yeah, he, he has an entire leadership read the book. By the way, they give you their kudos and say, just please congratulate him on his success. And it's made a huge difference for them. And so I have a Hotsey wall of pictures. Oh, that's so much fun. <laughs> which it is, is. Which is fantastic. And he is definitely a little bit larger than life. So he's a very gregarious kind of person. Again, not over the top, just very, very gracious. Now, question on that. Does someone have to be that kind of a personality or extroverted to still be successful with these strategies? No. I, you know, I think that what we've tried to point out in the book is that these are ideas and concepts and strategies or tactics that anybody can use to raise their game. You know, we may not be Tom Hanks, universally loved kind of guy. Uh, he's just got a talent and a gift. and Who knows what he's really like, but as an actor, he's just got this likable persona. But you can certainly do a lot of things to take wherever you are on the spectrum now and take it higher and higher and higher. And the real good news is that since hardly any other salespeople are doing this stuff, <laughs> even if you're not really great at it, you're going to be a lot better than they are because they're so lazy. So this is really for people who just have an ambition to try different things and to add energy to the environment. I love it. Oh, that's a very fun way to put it. So let's talk about entrepreneurs. Let's talk about salespeople a little bit because finding a great salesperson, keeping a great salesperson, keeping their productivity levels high can be a challenge. I know that you actually have a tool to help people figure that out. So can you share with us what are some of the key, obviously them having an ambition for elevating that energy would probably be one of the main characteristics. But what makes a great salesperson if that's, in fact, what their responsibility is? What do you look for? What do you advise other people to look for? You know, I think you were very, very astute in the beginning to say that these kinds of things can help everybody, including people who don't sell. So I agree with that. But now let's move to someone who sells for a living or that you're hiring and you expect them to sell for you or your business isn't going to pay off. So now you're moving into a little bit different realm where the question is, can everybody that you hire, whether they have certain intrinsic qualities or not, turn around then and produce, whether they're being trained by a strategic coach or us or whomever, as a salesperson? And our answer is no. Our answer is that now when you're moving into the NBA or the NFL of selling, and it's now going to come down to both whether you can run fast enough and jump high enough and be well-trained by a strategic coach or by what we do and so forth, now you're really much better off making sure that you're bringing in the right kind of talent. The three things that our psychologists have found that great salespeople share that cannot be taught, at least beyond the age of about 20, 
are need for achievement, competitiveness, and optimism. Mm. So need for achievement is the great golfer who has won five tournaments in a row, misses a putt, and goes out to the putting green till midnight. They just can't stand it. They have to get better. You know, they've got to get better. It's not about money, by the way. Secondly, the competitiveness part, we know what that means, but great salespeople, we found, interestingly enough, also compete in a friendly game of wills with the buyer. In other words, it's fun for them to persuade somebody. They love the give and take. They love that tension of being challenged. Okay, thanks for asking me that question. Let's get into that. And then the third thing is really important, and that's optimism. And that's really the body armor of being in a profession where seven out of eight times you're going to get rejected. Some people will take that personally. It will give them ulcers. People who are high in optimism could care less. They're like, okay, well, you know, sorry, well, that didn't work out. Who else can I call? I've still got three hours left. They are never, ever wallowing in their own, oh, my gosh, you know, maybe I'm not good enough. That just doesn't cross their mind. (laughs) (laughs) They assume something's wrong with the other person, not them. (laughs) Well, yeah, and, and, you know, I was a basketball player, and I had a guy score 45 points against me one day, and I got to know him well later, and I said, you know, you're shameless. You take way too many shots. What's the story? And he said, well... He said, I'm a 50% shooter. If I miss one, I know I'll make the next one. Whoa. I mean, there it is. <laughs> yeah. It's got nothing to do with missing a shot. It's got, all right, well, now I'm sure to make the next one. What a great attitude. Same with great salespeople. You know, they just know that the next call is going to be the one. It's interesting. I'd heard the optimism one, which I thought was, and there's some fabulous stats that I was reading. I wish I have to go find the story again so I can be concrete here. But the difference that an optimistic salesperson will make as opposed to one who is not is profound, like doubling the productivity in sales effectiveness. Oh, it's huge. And really, the big study was done by MetLife 20 years ago. And I had to take an optimistic person that's a lower IQ. Yes. And uh, they just blew away the other guys when it came to sales. You had to have a certain IQ, but that wasn't the pivot. The pivot was optimism, particularly in insurance, because that really is a high rejection context. Mm -hmm. So what we've done in answer to your question is we had a, a psychologist, a couple of them actually put together a diagnostic, an online diagnostic, and it's called the drive test because these three characteristics add up to what the psychologist called drive. And then a candidate or even employee can take this, and then you can get a pretty good idea of where they stack up on these three characteristics. So then now you've got a core. It's not a slam on anybody if they don't score high. The idea is it's really going to increase your odds of determining whether you want to invest more in this person as a salesperson. Maybe the person ought to slide over and be a wingman. Maybe the person could be the best customer relations person of all time. But if you want them to go out and develop new business, our theory is you've got to have these three things. You've got to score well on them or you're going to get beat up by the people who do. Mm-hmm. That's really powerful. And I want to go back. Your definition of competitiveness was a very interesting one. It's not how I normally thought about competition. I would have thought about competing against other salespeople or perhaps in the market. Because what you talked about, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, I do have that. Mm-hmm. I don't think of myself as being competitive otherwise. But that game of will, they enjoy the tension, they enjoy the persuading. That's a very interesting take on that. Yeah, I mean, the other competitiveness is there. They're definitely going to want to beat you at ping pong, pool, basketball, anything else. If they're competing, they love to compete, and they hate losing. Michael Jordan and others are famous for just hating to lose, tremendous fear of losing. But I just wanted to mention that's kind of the obvious. The twist is that these guys in sales even go a little bit further. And again, where some people, you know, your buyer may 
be a tough one and to be rebutting hard and having good logic, but you're enjoying it. (laughs) (laughs) It's a chess game. Yeah, okay, well, that's a good point, but now let's talk about this, as opposed to giving up and going home. Which is really such a great way. I mean, they're into it. They're into, quote-unquote, playing the game with that person. And I mean, that makes complete and total sense. I love it. That's very useful. This is such a great conversation. So the next part I want to move to is a little bit more what you talked about, again, I, there's a great story in the book about Mr. Schmooze coaching someone for an entrepreneur who's hired a salesperson and whose expectations aren't, well, put it this way, aren't quite in alignment with reality and was looking at it from a particular way that actually wasn't really helping them. And I find this a lot because I coach entrepreneurs and their teams. And oftentimes we hire someone and we expect them to read our minds and have our 20 plus years of experience and hit the ground running and do exactly what we would do and have exactly the same closing ratio. But that's not reality. So talk about how people who are hiring salespeople, how do they need to think about this? Well, it's really important. I've owned a lot of different kinds of businesses. I've been a private equity guy with other people who bought smaller businesses. I've owned a couple of franchise operations where it even comes down to, you know, you might have a small printing franchise and you have two salespeople, so they're really going to make or break your business. You just can't make a mistake. And the thing that's interesting to me is a guy will go out and buy a $200,000 printer and not even blink. But when it comes to hiring salespeople, they don't want to take the time. They don't want to take the effort. They don't want to do the assessments. It's just, okay, this guy looks pretty good. Let him go. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, If you would have made that same sort of analysis in buying your printer, guess what you would have ended up with? So what we're talking about is a couple of different things. There's one thing of your audience that has an interest in this part of the conversation. You do have to vet for talent. You've got to start with talent. You can't teach a big, heavy guy to run fast, and you can't teach a little skinny guy to lift weights as heavy as the heavy guy. You've got to really get that talent thing down first, and you can. The diagnostics are definitely there. But then once you start with that, and by the way, 15% of the population or less is going to score well on these diagnostics, so it could take you months to find somebody. But you've got to be very hard on your recruiters. I'm not bringing in somebody who doesn't have this talent because it's going to be 100000 bucks by the time we get the person out of here. So if you go back to, all right, we found one. You know, this person is scoring well on the non-teachables. Great. All right, you're hired. Go. Well, no, time out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've got an athlete, but you've got to teach him the game or the way your team plays the game. So two things need to happen that I think are big opportunities. Number one, you have to have a really, really good onboarding process, which I think you were speaking to. person shows up on Monday. You've got about six months to get that person to really bond with you, to love working there, to feel comfortable. Or otherwise, they're going to be on the other end of that going, well, okay, this is cool, but if anything else good comes along, I'm in. So that's emotional. Those are celebration times. You've done your, your first transaction together, but also just learning not only the intellectual ropes, but sort of the emotional ropes of the business. And then the second thing I really think is important is particularly if it's a younger person coming in as a mentor. And a mentor is different than a coach. Now, again, strategic coach may be both, I don't know, but what I mean is in terms of a definition of a coach versus a mentor, a mentor is really, to me, goes beyond coaching and gets back to that emotional side where you're there when the person is down, you have answers for the person when they're stuck, and you're just able to provide that emotional support through particularly that first six months or so of their new employment. 
you put together talent with a good onboarding process and some good mentoring, you can just turbocharge somebody for the next five years. That is a fabulous set of steps to go through. And it's easy to skip any one of those steps. Or all three, I can think of some circumstances where that would be true, where the person wasn't vetted, kind of like you look good. Now, sometimes there's a hit. Sometimes you win, which is probably reinforces bad behavior. But occasionally you can get lucky with just good instincts. But I love what you said when you've got really good onboarding, you vetted, you've got a really good onboarding process and a mentor, you turbocharge it. I don't know about you, but anyone else listening, that's very exciting to me. I want to turbocharge results and people's success. So that is a really great formula to go through. It's really high leverage, and it's fun for both sides. It's fun to be a mentor. And by the way, it's good in your company to have sort of a mentorship culture Mm. so that mentors are very highly valued and highly respected. Because sometimes, you know, you'll get the salespeople who have been around for a while or the managers, and they've been there, done that. They don't really want, what's in it for me? Well, what's in it for you? It's because you're one of our top people, because we wouldn't ask you unless you could add tremendous value doing this. And by the way, here's a few things we'll do for you if you're the mentor. I don't know what it would be. You know, we'll send you to Cabo. But there's some sort of a recognition of the value of mentorship. That's a really nice part of the value system of a company. I would totally agree. And it is something you want to support as a company culture. And I think obviously that would go outside of just sales team. Any kind of a team could probably benefit from having a mentor. Absolutely. And you'll see in the stories you read in sports all the time, the New York Yankees, it's legendary that when they'd have Babe Ruth, went to Joe DiMaggio, went to Mickey Mantle, he had this sort of legacy, and Joe DiMaggio didn't help Mickey Mantle. He just decided, you know, I'm jealous of this guy, I'm retiring, he didn't help him at all. And Mickey in his memoirs were safe. you know, I helped every young guy who overcame me after that, it hurt me so much. Mm. And so it's sort of an interesting anecdote, you know, relative to the power of mentoring. Yes, and the impact of not being mentored, too, the pain versus the pleasure of that. Exactly. So this has been a very rich conversation. We've talked about glow. We've talked about elevating. We've talked about strategies. We've talked about the components that make a really good salesperson and the fact that anyone can elevate their relationship building. But for people who are in sales, there are three really main characteristics, the need for achievement. The second one is that they really are competitive. They enjoy the game. They love the process of it and that they're optimistic. The next person's going to be a yes, which is yeah. such a great attitude. And then also just the whole process part. I mean, that's only just a few of the highlights from today. So I want to wrap up by asking, what has been the impact for you? I mean, obviously, professionally, there's been a big impact. What's the impact been on you personally and professionally from writing the book and having conversations about this? What difference has it made in your life? It is holistic. When you write a book, you can't help but merge what you've learned intellectually with how you feel emotionally. And so to be able to sort of coalesce the things that I was picking up about people who are special like this, you know, who are able to electrify the atmosphere and to turn other people on and so forth, and then to sit down and actually put it to paper talk to other people about it who might have been expert in it. It's just been a wonderful way of clarifying and crystallizing concepts that are very important to me. And, of course, then as you're writing a book like this, you begin to practice what you preach. You know, you truly immerse. So it's one thing, I suppose, to do something sort of quickly and to say, well, you know, you really ought to be giving more for a living. All right, now I'm going to go on to the next thing. To sit down and write about it. And then to go out some evening and find a car hop who, for example, would just love to have tickets to the Bulls game. And then they hand up in his box the next day. And then, you know, six months later, that car hop introduces you to some guy who becomes a client and that virtuous circle actually becomes alive. Mm-hmm. 
it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's also positive, you know, that's what I like about it. What impresses me about the book is there's just a, again, positivity and a generosity and a, you know, that whole sense of giving about it. It's not about taking or being on the make. It is very much about having a positive influence on others and benefiting because what goes around comes around kind of way of thinking about things. But to live it, to put it in practice so elegantly, as you've described here, is undoubtedly very powerful. Yeah, I think that there are people who will say, well, no matter how you cut it, you're still trying to use these techniques to your own benefit. I would just answer, well, welcome to the human race, you know. (laughs) I mean, we're all out there trying to find ways to cope, to be happy, to survive, to do well. And we have different ways we can do that. And I just think this way is the most positive one going, you know. You might as well do good by doing well or do well by doing good. Mm -hmm. It's just as powerful as any other way, and I choose this way. Obviously, we're all out for ultimately, whatever our goals are, but there are two ways to do it. There's the taking way or the giving way. And certainly one of them creates a much more expansive result overall versus someone who chooses, I would call it the smaller way or the more scarcity way of thinking. So if someone wants to learn more about you or wants to check out more information, how can they contact you? How can they learn more about your great wisdom that you have about, as you said, I love this expression, the art and science of selling through relationships? Sure. Well, I have the website, so mrschmooze.com, and schmooze is I spell a little different to just be fun with the title, S-H-M-O-O-Z-E. They could reach Richard Abraham on LinkedIn, or they could go to salesdrive.info to learn more about the diagnostic that we have. But you can come in on any of those and learn about the others, you know, so you can find me that way. I'm always happy to talk to people. Again, on the giving side, it's fun to turn people on sometimes to the diagnostics. They go through it, they come back a year later and go, these two people are doing great. Thank you so much. You know, that's fun. That's awesome. I love it. Well, Richard, we've actually managed to exhaust the whole hour already, which is fantastic. I have really enjoyed this conversation. And thank you very much, first of all, for just your attitude towards selling and towards relationships. I just appreciate that. And then certainly for packaging and putting it together so in such an accessible fashion. The story is fun. It's entertaining. It feels like you're reading a novel, but you know, you're learning something at the same time. And then also, obviously, for having this conversation and elaborating on some of those points and going even a little bit deeper. So I just really appreciate the fact that you're spending the time with us and helping us as entrepreneurs and people who are in the entrepreneurial world really help develop this relationship side of things and get even a lot better and to make an even bigger impact than we are now. So thank you very much. Hey, thank you. I've really enjoyed it, Shannon. That's great. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye.